0: The China Global South podcast is supported in part by the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg and by our subscribers. Thank you. If you'd like to subscribe for daily news and exclusive analysis about every aspect of China's engagement in Africa, Asia, and throughout the developing world, go to ChinaGlobalSouth.com forward slash subscribe.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China Global South podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam, and as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus van Staden, in lovely Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus.
0: Good afternoon.
1: Copus, last month there was a major diplomatic breakthrough that China helped to negotiate between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and it restored diplomatic ties between these two countries, these rival countries. We've talked about this on a number of shows over the past few weeks on this podcast. We've also covered it in excruciating detail in our daily newsletter coverage. And then last Friday, again, another surprise event happened where the restoration of diplomatic ties that was promised a month ago came through. And the foreign ministers of Iran and Saudi Arabia met in Beijing for the first time in seven years. And Kobus, I guess the question that a lot of people were wondering was, is this actually something real? And we weren't really sure about it last month, But now looking at the events and what's happening since in the Middle East and how there seems to be a cascade of discussions that are starting to happen and an easing of tensions across the sectarian divides and various countries, it does seem, at least at this preliminary stage, that what China's helped to broker has been quite meaningful.
0: It certainly seems quite promising, you know, kind of now a month in. I mean, for example, you know, there's a, there's been a Saudi delegation and an Omani delegation visiting with um, Houthi leaders in Yemen, for example, that's you know, a, a proxy Saudi-Iran conflict so you know kind of so there is movement forward it seems but still at the same time the discussion around it has been whipped up so much by geopolitics on all the different sides that it really remains difficult to work out exactly how much substance there is and you know how much it changes and where we go to from there.
1: Well, let's sample a little bit of that discussion. And so much of the discourse surrounding what is a tripartite deal among the Chinese, Saudis, and Iranians does involve and focus a lot of attention on the role of the United States. Now, I'm going to bring you a sample of the sound of, again, different voices on this. This is by no means comprehensive, but I just want to use it to set up our discussion today. And I've been looking forward to speaking with our guest on this for quite some time. But let's first start with the right-wing media in the United States that is having just a nervous breakdown, is all I can say. I mean, they're literally melting down over this. This is a segment from Steve Hilton on Fox News. He's one of their I don't know who he is. I mean, in the sense, he's their foreign affairs commentator, whatnot. And, and again, henny penny, the sky is falling.
0: One of the many terrible consequences of the Democrats' divisive get Trump circus is that we're not paying attention to some absolutely seismic and disastrous developments in foreign policy. This week, China made a massive global advance
1: by strengthening in its ties with Saudi Arabia, which joined a China-led security bloc and signed a multi-billion dollar energy deal. This comes straight after China brokered a peace deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran. It's all a massive humiliation, not just for America, but Biden personally. Just listen to what he said in Saudi Arabia in July. Let me state clearly that the United States is going to remain an active, engaged partner in
2: the Middle East. We will not walk away and leave a vacuum to be filled by China, Russia, or Iran. But well, it seems like Biden fist-bumped his way out of that promise.
1: <laughs> okay, you, you know, you can always rely on Fox for some good humor there. Now, let's kind of go to the opposite extreme here. And this is CGTN, Chinese state media. And Chinese propaganda has taken this and just run with it. Einar Tangen is a senior fellow at the Taihe Institute in Beijing. And he's really one of CGTN's go-to guys who basically is on the air all the time. I mean, he really is on CGTN a lot. And he basically, his job is to say, everything China does is great and everything that the United States does sucks. If they come together and start issuing a diplomatic solution, yeah, this could be game changing, and it really speaks to uh, this issue about, you know, whether uh, China is trying to uphold the international order and spread peace, or whether, as the narrative, is many in the U.S. to say, that somehow uh, China is uh, not, uh, that it's a uh, somehow a rogue nation. This clearly, by action, demonstrates that China is the one who is trying to make sure that we have a better and more peaceful world. Okay, that's kind of what you would expect on CGTN, but let's kind of shift to the Gulf a little bit. And Al Jazeera, they ran a lot of coverage on this, and they have this segment called Al Jazeera Opinions. And in this outtake from Trita Parsi, who's the executive vice president of the Quincy Institute, he frames it the way that a lot of people have been talking about it on Al Jazeera, which is in the context of declining U.S. influence in the region.
2: One of the reasons why the Chinese were successful in the Iranian Saudi case is precisely because they had stayed out of those conflicts. They were not taking the Saudi side. They were not taking the Iranian side. They were neutral. Their only interest was to make sure that there was stability because that's good for their economy. That makes China an attractive mediator for a lot of countries in the region in a way that America is not. I do believe that there's a growing sentiment in the region that the United States is not the partner you turn to in order to resolve conflicts, but that now China perhaps is.
1: And that is the view that is widely shared among a lot of people throughout the Middle East and certainly in China. Now, the White House uh, was a little bit reticent to speak on this over the past few weeks, and they were pressed by reporters quite a bit. And the first reaction was, yeah, we heard about this. The Saudis were talking to us all the way. You know, great. Anybody that helps to bring peace into the Middle East, we're here for. There was this kind of attitude of like, you know what. Eh, let's see what happens. Then there shifted the tone a little bit into, well, you know what, if the Chinese want to step into this hot mess that is the Middle East, let them at it. And then it's also then kind of swung another way where there's growing anxiety by folks in the national security community in D.C. that says, you know, maybe the Chinese are displacing us. And that was the tone at a number of the White House press conferences with spokesperson Karine Jean-Pierre. And she again came back to the idea that, Anything that spreads peace and stability in the Middle East is in the long-term U.S. interest.
0: Welcome any efforts to help end the war in Yemen and de-escalate tensions in the Middle East region. That is one of the reasons why the President, you saw him travel uh, in over the summer uh, to to have those conversations. De-escalation and diplomacy together with deterrence are key pillars of the policy that the President, uh, that President Biden uh, uh, put out, uh, outlined during his his visit in July in the region. So again, de-escalation, tensions in the Middle East clearly is a priority and he welcomes that.
1: Okay, this is a lot to take in. Today, what we want to try and do is make sense of all of this, and for that, we've invited really the best person to do that for us. Bill Figueroa is a research associate at the Cambridge Center for Geopolitics at Cambridge University in the UK. He's also one of the foremost scholars on China-Iran relations. We've had him on the show before. As soon as this deal was signed, I said, I got to talk to Bill to get his take. So Bill, a very good afternoon to you. I've been looking forward to our conversation for weeks now. And welcome back to the program.
2: Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for all your very kind words. I've been excited too, but the last time that I was on here, uh, we had a really great discussion about the last major Iran-China news that kind of broke out of the the normal news cycle and kind of broke into the popular imagination, which was the 25-year agreement. So I'm just very happy to be able to be back and to talk about what's going on with you guys again.
1: Yeah, we're going to talk about that 25-year agreement and how that plays into all of this and also the Saudi relationship. But first, I want to get your t- take on all that noise that I played in the beginning of the show from the various, the right wing response in the United States, very similar response, by the way, in Israel in India as well. There's a concern that China is using this to kind of elevate their status as a global peacemaker. What's your take? How do we process this? How do we frame what's happening right now in this relationship among the Saudis, the Chinese and the Iranians?
2: Right, I mean, you know, you're, 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 what you're basically, you know, getting at here is like, what does this mean? And I, I think that the best way to maybe start with that is to explain what it doesn't mean, because as you said, with the coverage from the first two that you played, there's a lot of uh, very overblown reactions in both directions on this issue, as there often are on anything regulating to China in the Middle East. It doesn't mean that there is, as of the signing of this agreement, peace in our times, so to speak, between Iran and Saudi Arabia. It doesn't rid Uh, The region, any sort of tension between the two. There's a lot still to be done in terms of actual practical commitments that both sides have made, but also to see the reaction of various parties who are either not directly part of the Iranian or the Saudi state or are various factions within both of those states uh, that might have different uh, views on the matter. And, you know, depending on how. Things develop going forward uh, might react in various different ways, so it's a little premature to say that this is uh, going to sort of end those tensions, which is kind of the foundation of a lot of where the sort of CGTN coverage kind of comes from. What it also doesn't mean is the that there is the sort of incoming massive amount of investment in Iran to China or some sort of formal alliance between China and any of these countries involved. Nor does it mean the end of the United States in the Middle East. You know, uh, like as is often said, it's much predicted. But, you know, people say that the American empire is ending or something like that. But, you know, I will always remind people that it has not yet ended. So that's something that has to always be remembered. We can't dismiss the realities of the situation right now as they continue to exist. The reality is, is that America is still the number one supplier of security, military hardware, weapons, high technology, and also still remains an important diplomatic player with Saudi Arabia. Uh, Right now, There are ongoing talks, for example, to extend the Abraham Accords to Saudi Arabia and to uh, pursue some sort of diplomatic normalization between Israel and Riyadh. And that's happening, you know, through the Americans who have much better relations with both countries than China does in this particular case. You said that sort of the sky is falling over at Fox News. Well, the sky has been falling for those people, you know, since the 25-year agreement has been signed, if not longer. So that doesn't shock me. What it does mean and what we can look forward to going forward, I think, is that this is definitely an important moment in terms of China's role in the Middle East. As I'm sure you can confirm, Eric, I am one of the most skeptical people around when it comes to this narrative of China is about to have a massive and impactful role in the Middle East and displace the United States, this is the first time that there's been anything substantial to these kinds of claims. That there's been an actually successful agreement brokered by China that could not have been brokered by the United States that does contribute positively to the reduction of tensions in the region. You know, that's nothing to sneeze at. That's absolutely an important achievement it does mean that there is going to possibly be that reduction of tensions. Like I said, there's not guaranteed yet, but if things go along smoothly, yes, that's definitely a positive thing for the region. And it does mean that there is going to be a more multipolar approach to politics in the Middle East, or rather, I should say, it signals that there already is a more multipolar approach to politics. People often say or get caught up in this debate between, you know, is this or is this not? China overthrowing the U.S.-led security order or the U.S.-led rules-based international order. I think that this sort of misses the point. First of all, whether or not that order is rules-based or, more accurately, is based on whatever the rules that the sort of hegemon of the system the United States decides that they are, and setting that whole debate aside, what it is is it's a situation in which China wants a bigger piece at the table, and a bigger say in the decision-making process of the system as it is roughly set up now, um, because they benefit from that system and they don't have the military or technological capacity or, in my opinion, the political will to fully displace the United States in that respect. So you are seeing, I think, what China actually wants, which is a world in which they are one of the major players of the Middle East, but certainly not completely displacing the United States. Although the fact that China can broker deals like this does mean that there's a bit more, what's the right word, flexibility on the part of Middle Eastern uh, states now in terms of their capacity to push back against or pursue their own independent policies, which is what you're seeing in Saudi Arabia now. But I wouldn't overblow that, right? I think that, for example, Saudi Arabia has been pursuing policies contrary to what the United States wants long before their relationship with China. So that's my not so quick (laughs) uh, summary of what I think is going on.
0: So, if for the moment, if we step away from the US-China kind of issue, since the signing of, of the deal, um, in your tracking of what's going on in the Middle East itself, what kind of signs have you seen after the signing that we can use as some form of like indicator of how things are going to go forward, like, you know, kind of like, you know, in addition to the debate about whether this, you know, what this says about the future role of China and the future role of the US, like, do do you get a sense that things that pieces are moving into alignment within middle the Middle East to to actually make this deal have long term impact?
2: So I think that it's hard to say So there's sort of two questions here, right? One is, what do I see in terms of how China can be involved in that process? And what can I see in terms of how is it going to happen on its own, right? Because fundamentally, this was a regional process that China sort of became involved with towards the end, right? There was ongoing negotiations. They lost their ability to negotiate in Baghdad. And China was, the way I see it, kind of a convenient neutral place that had good relations with both sides that they could continue that negotiation in. And also, I think, importantly, providing some level of guarantees, especially given the lack of trust between the two sides, that they would hopefully, you know, sort of follow through and stick to their agreements in terms of the commitments that they've made, uh, especially in terms of, you know, drawing down aggressive actions and things of that nature. Where I see the problem with that is that it's not entirely up to the Iranian or the Saudi state what happens next. For example, right now, Saudi Arabia is negotiating a longer-term ceasefire with the Houthi movement, but there's been a lot of different reactions from different players. So, for example, the Saudi-backed Yemeni government has said that they are not bound by any sort of agreement made between Iran and the Houthis. The Houthis have also indicated that they're not very happy to negotiate with the leader of that same Saudi-backed Yemeni government. Hezbollah and other regional actors who are involved in proxy wars between uh, that are backed by that Saudi and Iran are backing and, you know, on different sides in other parts of the region have also expressed skepticism that these movements are going to result in a real reduction of tensions. There's also issues like Saudi Arabia has apparently uh, promised to reduce its uh, support for Iran International and other media organizations that Iran blames for sort of sending negative propaganda against it but they also deny doing those things in the first place. So how can these sorts of measures even be verified? It's going to be very hard. So I think that um, in terms of the deal holding, it's really going to come down to this sort of regional peace process. China actually has very little leverage other than the fact that it can continue to provide investment to Saudi Arabia. And it can, and this is really important, I think, begin to really provide increased investment to Iran. Because the other side of this story is that investment in Iran between Iran and China has actually been quite low, and that one of the reasons why Iran might be willing or interested in having China involved is that it puts a little bit more pressure on China to follow through with its previous agreements and its previous uh, statements that it it wants to increase relations and increase investment in Iran, uh, but that it hasn't up to now followed through with.
1: Yeah. So on the topic of China serving as the guarantor of this agreement, one of the memes that I heard in the discussion about this was, well, there may be no mechanisms that China can use to sanction because it doesn't, you know, use the sanctions the same way that the United States does. And it can't punish either one diplomatically in that sense. But what it can do is that it can put fear into each of these governments that if they embarrass China, so if tomorrow the Iranians start launching Scud missiles into, you know, Saudi Arabia, then the Chinese can, you know, punish them through trade and other economic measures and things like that but these two countries are not equal in terms of their relationship with China. We've talked about previously that Iran needs China far more than China needs Iran. But that's not the case now with Saudi Arabia that is either the number one or number two oil supplier to the Chinese. Saudi Arabia has a lot more leverage in the relationship with the Chinese. So if Saudi Arabia violates the agreement for any reason, then the Chinese have not an entire, they don't have a lot to play with in terms of punishing the Saudis if they wanted to. So how does it work in terms of the mechanisms that the Chinese might use or the dynamics among the players in terms of looking to China not to be the guarantor of the deal?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think you really hit the nail on the head. You know, they don't have other than saying, well, we might not invest or we might cancel future investments, which is hard to believe they would do because the investments were proceeding so strongly before this agreement was ever signed. And Saudi was the
1: largest recipient of BRI money last year. So they're in with Saudi Arabia deep. I mean, there's no pulling out quickly now.
2: Yeah. And comparatively, too, with Iran, I mean, you know, they signed this massive deal and then they had this big trip to Saudi Arabia shortly after that. And all that really did was highlight the fact that Saudi Arabia was the number one recipient and Iran had received, I think, something like an embarrassingly small, like one hundred and fifty seven million dollars of investment up to that point that year like something just absolutely paltry. And that was really the context of Raisi's visit to Beijing, during which he ostensibly accepted the terms of this deal, when he openly said so, that this was the kickstart to restart China-Iran relations and to sort of induce Beijing into following through with its investments. And I think that's really all that it got. I think it's not so much a sort of negative inducement, right? I think it's more that China saw this as a peace process that's going in this direction anyway that it can facilitate in some way because there's a lack of trust on both sides that that sort of by less so for Saudi Arabia, but more for Iran by sort of implicitly or even overtly, you know, reiterating its promise to invest in the Iranian oil industry, to invest in in the Iranian economy more generally. And I think that that's really why I look at it as like Saudi Arabia was looking to China to provide guarantees that Iran is not going to, for example, just continue supporting the Houthis or do other things that might threaten the deal. Of course, from Iran's perspective, obviously Saudi Arabia is the not-trustworthy partner, but I'm just saying from their perspectives, right? So I think that that's really what their hope is. And that's where it can get a little dicey because China has many times said that it would like to invest in Iran and then not followed through because the investments are difficult. They don't have very high returns. Chinese investors are not particularly interested in Iran and they see it as a liability, especially since the arrest of uh, Meng Wanzhou, you know, for related to violating the sanctions. So you may or may not see an increase of Chinese investment in Iran going forward. If you don't see it, It's definitely going to raise questions within Iran whether or not getting China involved in this deal was worth it at all.
1: Yeah. And those of you who who may need to just a refresher, Meng Wanzhou, of course, is the daughter of the founder of Huawei and is the chief financial officer, and was detained by Canadian authorities for quite some time for violating sanctions on Iran. Kobus, go ahead.
0: So just on the sanctions on Iran, I saw Politico is running with a story today that Iran has been in, in long-term talks with China, with both China and Russia, about possibly procuring rocket fuel. So I was wondering, A, what you think of of that, and these these kind of, like, how, how the deal kind of, like, lands in the larger kind of context of sanctions against iran but then also how you see russia's potential kind of role in all of this
2: yeah i mean i saw that news too it didn't surprise me both you know china has very clearly calculated that it is not in its interest to allow i will say very carefully to allow russia to be defeated they definitely also don't see it in their interest to support russia in some kind of total victory but they don't want to see Russia weaken to the point of collapse, for example. So they they have every reason from their own perspectives to allow for, you know, this kind of modest resupplying of Russian uh, military equipment. Now, that's and that's, of course, if that does happen. The, this is kind of like a A then B then C situation, right? The deal is actually for, a, a, I think it's the Chinese and Russian companies to resupply Iranian companies with fuel for their rockets. But those rockets may end up being sold to Russia l- later on down the line. So honestly, I think that this has less to do with the deal, you know, that there's a tendency now to think everything has to do with this deal, right? I mean, this was going on already. You know, Iran was selling drones to Russia. Iran had good kind of low-level uh, military and natural resources oil, you know, trade with both China and Russia. Um, so, so you know, I think this would have was kind of already probably in the works and will continue to be in the works. I don't really see Russia playing a major role in the calculations really going on here, other than the fact that China is trying to play a larger role in the world more generally. And, you know, it's it's sort of more, uh, you know, the, re- the week after, for example, this announcement came out, Xi Jinping visited Russia and was talking about the Ukraine and all that. And so it's definitely part of China's attempts to be seen as having a larger role in the world. And in fact, you know, genuinely playing a larger role in the world. But I actually think it just sort of highlights how this is going to have I think, important implications for the region in terms of reducing tension, you know, but I don't think it's going to have a major impact on, uh, for example, Iran's continued tendency to, you know, want to work with Russia and China other than to maybe bolster it. I mean, if the deal goes through and they achieve more investment from China, that would only convince them to continue down this path. Uh, But if it falls through, then there's a very real risk that these policies, which previously were being criticized mercilessly in the Iranian press will once again become a liability. You know, since the deal has been announced, there's been sort of like a reassessment. And now they're saying, well, maybe this East policy wasn't so bad after all. Uh, but if it falls through, then, you know, they could once again be criticized for that. And that might change the calculations and how they approach both Russia and China.
1: I guess the part of this that took me by surprise is that when she went to Saudi Arabia last December... And really was fetid in many respects. And again, that was all framed in the context of what Biden did. And remember that the White House intentionally played down the visit to the kingdom for domestic reasons, not because the kingdom didn't want to welcome Biden with all the pomp and circumstance that they normally do, but it's not good politics in the United States to be too cozy with the Saudis right now. And so she goes and he gets the purple carpet treatment. Remember that? Beautiful purple (laughs) carpets that went out. And what was interesting was that there was this Arab summit that kind of uh, got together towards the end of the visit. The Iranians were not uh, there. And then in the communique, of that summit, the Chinese took the side of the United Arab Emirates on an island dispute between the UAE and Iran. Everybody went, what? That's kind of weird. First of all, that the Chinese taking a position on a territorial dispute involving islands is pretty unusual, frankly. I mean, that, that's not their usual form. But then again, to come out so blatantly against the Iranians, <clears throat> that seemed like a diss. And so then, President Raisi in 2023 rushes to Beijing, and apparently was on that visit to Beijing when he was trying to make up and patch the relationship up. Then all this talk with Saudi kind of started. Were you surprised by the announcement of the deal, or had you seen this building up because you follow this so much more closely than the rest of us do?
2: I yeah, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I, I I'm not gonna lie here. I was very much surprised. I didn't really see anything indicating that China would be involved in this process. I wasn't surprised that there was some kind of a deal that had been reached. That was clearly in the works for quite some time. I was surprised that the deal was conducted in Beijing and that the languages were Arabic, Persian, and Chinese. Uh, That was what was surprising to me. You said that, you know, it's, it was kind of surprising the degree to which China backed to the UAE and departed from its
1: normal language. Which just felt like they were giving a cold shoulder to the Iranians. It, and that it just felt a little bit
2: unusual in that sense. It's unusual because that's not actually what happened. It was surprising to me, actually, was that they didn't realize that what they had actually said was going to have an impact in Iran. So let me explain what I mean by this. If you look at the actual text released by the, uh, the Chinese government, it's not dissimilar to what the Chinese government says about basically every conflict that is involving two countries that it has a good relationship with. It didn't say we endorse the UAE's position or, or anything direct like that. All, what it actually said was that these disputes over these three islands between these two countries should be settled through negotiation and diplomacy and calming of tensions and and peaceful means on both sides, right? This is what China says about absolutely everything from the Israel-Palestine conflict to the conflict in Ukraine, Uh, you know, you name it, that's their baseline position. What upset the Iranian press was the fact that the Chinese would take any kind of position and that they would suggest that the islands were up to negotiation at all. And this is partially due to the particular sensitivities of the Iranian public To the idea that, you know, there could be any negotiation whatsoever over these islands, but also because, as I said, there was all this domestic criticism about look at the failures of the Look East policy. So the snub was not actually that they had openly endorsed the UAE. The snub was that after signing the 25 year agreement, after Raisi puts all of his eggs in this look east basket, that there was very little investment from China to Iran. And in fact, there was a major pulling out of a, a Chinese oil, a pick, pulled out of a deal that had been go- negotiating for over a decade. So that was really the snub. And, you know, Xi Jinping showing up in Riyadh amid all that pomp and circumstance was like the dig. And then the wording where it was like, maybe it could be interpreted in this way, that just felt like an unnecessary slap in the face. Now, I'm just surprised that they didn't realize that the message would be received that way in the Iranian press, but I don't think it was intentional.
1: Yeah, so that's a little bit like saying Taiwan is up for negotiation. Exactly. And the Chinese would say, absolutely not. There's no negotiation. Taiwan is a non-negotiable thing. So for the Iranians, this is the equivalent of Taiwan.
2: Yes, there's definitely been many cases where countries have thought they were taking a rather nuanced position in Taiwan only to find that China did not appreciate that particular language, right? That's why I'm kind of surprised that if you think they would be sensitive to these issues. They do seem to have pretty good understanding of Iranian politics. So my guess is that it just wasn't vetted properly.
0: So in a larger kind of a very kind of like meta level, do you get the sense that China is evolving towards a vision, its own vision for what a kind of a peaceful settlement in parts of the Middle East would actually look like is, you know, is is, is that in addition to China's ambitions to play a bigger role on, on the stage, you know, which people tend to focus on? Do they also bring a particular a uniquely Chinese kind of vision of what success might look like?
2: I don't think so. Um, I don't think there was anything uniquely Chinese about this agreement. Uh, I called it in one one thing that I wrote is sort of like a, a, a regionally driven peace process with Chinese characteristics, right? The Chinese characteristics really just being that the deal was signed in Beijing and that the fact that both parties have good relations with China and want to continue to guarantee access to Chinese investment is part of the sort of underlying reasons why both parties are, are willing to trust each other, right? But all of the factors leading to why they wanted to pursue a reduction of tensions at all, you know, really originate in the region. And the same is true, you know, I, I want to be really clear about this. This is also true of U.S. diplomacy in the Middle East. The Abraham Accords were not, you know, designed by Donald Trump. You know, Jared Kushner did not show up in the Middle East and through his skillful diplomacy, bring about the end of a conflict. Um, These were processes that were already happening. And, you know, America served as the sort of negotiating table. At times they were able to, you know, because they're able to provide guarantees or bring parties to the table, they certainly play an important role. And you could perhaps even say that maybe the deal wouldn't have gone through as it did at that time without America or without China at this moment, but not because of a uniquely American or Chinese vision for peace. I think that China has the same basic vision for regional stability that, you know, the international community as a, in general has, which is that a reduction of tensions and, uh, uh, you know, a stable environment for investment generally benefits, you know, anyone who wants to get involved in a peaceful negotiations with these countries. I think that it would actually be a bigger question to ask whether the United States actually sees the same kind of regional stability as being in its best interest. Because, you know, U.S. has, I obviously don't have to explain how the United States has not always pursued peace in the Middle East as part of its, you know, natural, what is perceived as its national interest. So I suppose in the sense that I don't see any reason why China would have any desire for anything other than a stable investment environment Maybe you can say that's uniquely Chinese in the sense that the United States might not share that vision, whatever they say. But I don't think it's anything more than what I said, because they want to bolster their own the chances for the returns on their investments to be good and for those investments not to go belly up because of conflict or because, uh, you know, capital was scared off by some sort of incident or what have you.
1: How well understood do you think that is in the region itself? Because what we're picking up through our Arabic service is that there's a lot of discussion about how China is going to replace the United States. And that's a narrative we hear coming out of obviously Iran and some of the US rivals that they would love to see the United States exit stage left out of the Middle East. And obviously there's <laughs> there's a deep-seated, you know, hatred there that goes back a long way. You know, when you look at the history of former and imperial powers from the west in the Middle East, whether it was the British or the Americans now or the French to some extent, uh, there is a sense that, well, here come the Chinese. They're just going to be like the others. Do you get a sense that in Saudi, in Iran and in various parts of the Gulf, they have a a more refined understanding of the differences between the Chinese and the West and how they operate?
2: I think they do. I think it's just that the narratives that you see, you know, cropping up in public are they play well, right? I mean, it's obvious in Iran why you know, we're going to kick out the Americans and replace them with the
1: Chinese. As a- Even the Saudis are kind of pushing that out there. And I think they do that for leverage over the Americans as well to say, listen, if you don't look at us, we've got others that we can kind of turn to.
2: That's exactly correct. It plays very well. You know, right now it is. You know, I mean, Biden promised to I forget what exactly the phrase he used to make them a pariah or you humiliate them in some way. I mean, there's a kind of tit for tat diplomatic game happening there, too. So, yes. But in practice, I think the Saudis have a very good understanding about the limitations of Chinese investment and the extent to which China can provide a replacement for the United States. And I don't think that they want them to. You know, every single move has been coupled with either a simultaneous announcement from the Saudi government that. This is not targeted at any particular country. Uh, That was the case, you know, back when Xi Jinping visited. Or in this case, literally the same week, maybe even the same day as this announcement came out, it was also announced that the Saudis had reached out to the United States about the possibility of a Saudi-Israel agreement. Uh, You know, uh, what's his name? Bill Burns of of the CIA has been in Saudi Arabia for both times. He went back last year around the time when all of this was first starting to become an issue. And he went recently. You know, after the peace deal was announced, I don't think there's any questions on the minds of Saudi planners that, you know, whatever they say in public, the United States is going to continue to play a role in the country. And I don't think that they want to lose access to that. Right. I mean, the United States is very supportive of, you know, the sort of Saudi Vision 2030 project and sort of domestic economic goals of the kingdom. They're an important part of that. I think you're absolutely right that they want to say to America, look, we don't have to follow and do everything you say. And they want to say that to the rest of the world. And they want to genuinely diversify the partners that they have to reduce risk and to reduce the leverage any individual partner has on them.
0: You know, you mentioned Israel. Could you talk a little bit about where Israel is standing in relation to the deal now? Um, Particularly also, you know, as there's such kind of massive domestic kind of political issues going on in Israel at the moment at the same time. Um, So I was just kind of wondering, you know, kind of where Israel is kind of is, is, is in relation to China, the US and then Saudi Arabia and Iran.
2: There's a sort of similar debate going on in Israel. On the last episode, you had Tuvia Gering, who was talking about these kinds of debates going on in Israeli policymaking circles, very similar to the United States. Some people are very much saying this is a disaster. You know, it's bringing in more Chinese influence. It's normalizing Iran's relations in the region. Uh, But then there's also people like Tuvia who are sort of saying, as I think he aptly put it last week, you know, take a chill pill. And I think that that's kind of where it's at. I don't think that I, I won't speak to this as an expert because I haven't looked super closely at Israel's response. Tuvia would absolutely be the person to talk to about that. But it seems like that they, like the United States, have not taken a really strong position about it, you know, one way or the other. Obviously, since they're exploring the possibility of normalizing relations with Saudi Arabia, they're not going to come right out and say this is a horrible thing. So uh, I think that kind of also just trying to, I don't want to say wait and see, but still trying to formulate what, what they are understanding of how this is going to change things and what you know what's going to happen in the future, which is where we're all at right now. Um, you know, even I am still trying to fully grapple with this and understand it. I think more so than anything else, it's been a challenge to how I've understood China's role in the Middle East up to this point, um, which has been fairly less of a, you know, I I could say with much greater confidence that all these people saying that this is a huge game-changing thing were, you know, kind of overreacting. This is the first time where it's like, well, we have to see where it'll go still. But this is, you know, if, if you're someone who believes that China should have a bigger role in the Middle East, you have cause to be optimistic right now.
1: If you are a betting man, and I'm not sure if you are, but if you are a betting man, next year at this time when we speak to you, Is the deal still intact? Are the Iranians and the Saudis getting along? Is China still the mediator of choice? Where do you think we are in, you know, taking out your crystal ball, looking ahead through this year and maybe early next year?
2: Oh, you're really going to do this to me, aren't you? I mean, I mean, this is a there's a no win
1: situation on predicting anything in the Middle East past the next five minutes. So Uh, I, I do acknowledge that much less a year. But just in terms of the durability of this agreement and of Chinese diplomacy in this region, what do you think right now?
2: Well, maybe in the classic style of how China has handled situations like this in the Middle East, I won't come down on either side, but I'll I'll explain to you maybe why I think that either one could potentially happen. In a world in which the deal is still held together, I think you would have definitely seen Iran, let me be a little bit more clear about, where the deal is held together and is seen as a valuable success by all parties, right? you might see a situation where, like I said, China doesn't invest in Iran and Iran doesn't think that China's involvement was a good idea. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to abandon normalization with Saudi Arabia because they were pursuing that for their own reasons already. But a world in which the deal is seen as a win for China and is still holding together, China would definitely have invested more in Iran and would have satisfied Iran's desire to be seen as a a greater, more important partner to China on par with the GCC and in Saudi Arabia, I think you would see greater integration between the GCC and Iran in general. You're already seeing some of that. Uh, China has said that it will be holding a sort of joint conference with all the GCC states and Iran after the deal has been finalized. That would be a big first, and that would be a big step in in the direction of actually having some sort of regional coordination rather than rivalry going on between Iran and Saudi Arabia. So, you know, and and, and I don't see any reason why those things couldn't happen. A world in which the deal does not hold together or in which China is not seen as a particularly useful party in the long run, basically the opposite of that. China doesn't provide investment to Iran, which this is where I will tell you, if I was a betting man, I would say that the prestige of holding the deal together is probably not going to be enough to overcome the difficulties of investment. I don't predict massive amounts of investment pouring into Iran. Although... If anything could do it, I think this is the first thing that I would be like, okay, you know, I could see how that happened. And I think that the biggest danger other than that is just the individual actors not wanting to stick to the underlying requirements for the agreement, the war in in Yemen being the most obvious one, um, because whatever Saudi Arabia and Iran wants, you know, the Houthis and the, the Saudi-backed government there are completely at odds and don't seem to have any easy path to getting along. And Once tensions are, uh, you know, if Saudi Arabia, for example, extricates itself from the situation to a certain degree, that doesn't mean the tensions are going to go away or that violence is going to end. And that might induce, you know, a response from Iran once again. And again, you also have, you know, there's things could flare up in Syria or in Lebanon as well, where there are also Iranian proxy groups or groups that are backed by the Iranian government in various ways. So I would say that my experience in the Middle East tells me that it is more likely that something is going to go wrong than that everything is going to go right. But I will say that like the Abraham Accords, which were surprising, but have since held, both Iran and Saudi Arabia for the first time in the last, you know, not for the first time, but like since they started this process a few years ago, have their own reasons to want to hold to the peace agreement. So at least from that perspective, there's every reason to believe that they will continue to work in that direction. You know Whether they can actually achieve it is more than I'm willing to go on public record saying. Wow, it really does
1: feel like a game of three-dimensional chess here. And so much can go wrong, but so much can go right, too. I mean, so, Bill, we're going to you know, record what you've said here. Mm-hmm. And then one year from now, we're going to hold you to it either way. And let's see what happens.
2: (laughs) So, well, the the great thing from my perspective is that, you know, as I said, I've been very skeptical and I've pointed out the many ways in which up until this point, China's involvement in the Middle East has been largely exaggerated. So this is a really exciting time for me. If I'm right, then I get to be one of the few people who was like, "Ah, I told you, you know, you guys were freaking out and it wasn't a big deal. If I'm wrong, then I get to be I won't even say if I'm wrong because I am for the first time saying, yeah, maybe this I kind of look at it as like, look, if you can convince me and I'm a fairly skeptical guy, you know, this maybe this is something actually worth paying attention to. And if I'm wrong, then this is the beginning of really interesting relationship and a really interesting change in dynamics that we're all going to be learning a lot about and sort of reassessing how we understand the Middle East over the next couple of years. So it's an exciting time either way. It is
1: an exciting time, and dialing down the tensions between the Saudis and the Iranians has got to be a good thing, so we just have to hope that it holds. So uh, Bill Figueroa is a research associate at the Cambridge Center for Geopolitics at Cambridge University, and as you can hear, he is one of the most knowledgeable guys in the business on China-Iran and China-Persian Gulf relations. Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to to join us. I can't say that you've helped clear things up, but that's actually the best thing is to muddy it up for us because it isn't simple. The simple narratives don't work here. And again, that is one of the missions of our show is to confuse people with the complexity of these debates. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing, my usual thing now is to say, what's your Twitter handle? But I don't even know if anybody's on Twitter anymore, but let's just kind of go for it. (laughs) Honestly, I mean, I've seen the engagement just plummet now. People are shifting over to all sorts of different places. Bill Bishop just moved over to Notes. Which is Substacks, and uh, so uh, you know, tell people where they can find you if they want to follow what you're reading and writing, wherever that may be.
2: So for now, I am still on Twitter. I am still using the handle Iran China Guy because I am nothing if not someone with a sense of humor. I think the best place to find, if you're looking for all of my stuff, whether it's sort of my more popular op-ed type articles or my actual academic research, because as you didn't mention, I am a historian first and foremost. I have my PhD is in the history of Iran-China relations. And so I've written pretty extensively about that. Uh, you can find that on my academia.edu profile. Uh, and if you just, you know, search my name, William Figueroa, academia.edu, you'll find it there. Uh, and it has a nice collection of things that I've done.
1: Fantastic. Well, I'll make it easy for everybody because I'll put it in the show notes. So I'll put Bill's Twitter handle and I'll, you should go, by the way, start locking up Iran-China guy on a bunch of other platforms just because we don't oh, know what's going to happen to Twitter anymore <laughs> these days, but uh, I'll put the links in the show notes to academia.edu and also to Bill's Twitter handle so you can follow everything that he's reading, writing, and his previous work. Bill, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it.
2: Thank you for having me. Uh, you know, this is one of my favorite podcasts, and I'm always excited to be able to be on it and talk to you guys. <laughs>
1: Kobus, the reason I love talking to Bill is because, again, he, he complicates things. It's never simple. It's never clean. It's never neat. And that's the way I like it when we talk about China. And again, we really need to challenge the simple narratives, both from the Chinese side and from the Fox News side and from the Israeli side, because none of it seems to play out. The thing that I've been thinking about, and I want to run this by you, is that I find that China is playing a weak hand very well. That is, they can't compete against the United States militarily in the Western Pacific. Because if they could, they would be pushing the United States back out of the Western Pacific. And what they've been doing over the past four or five months that you and I have been tracking so aggressively in the newsletter is this really amped up diplomacy. We just saw it in the past few weeks with the Macron visit, the French president, the Spanish prime minister was there. And that's the Chinese kind of trying to put some cracks into the U.S.-European coalition. Li Long, the prime minister of Singapore. Anwar Ibrahim, the prime minister of Malaysia, was there. Very positive trips. Lots of engagement with the Vietnamese here. And then we have, obviously, things that are happening in the Americas. The switch from for Honduras from Taiwan to China. And then Lula visiting this week, in fact, to China as well. And so... This diplomatic net in many respects that the Chinese are building, these webs, in many ways counteract, possibly counteract. And you can see I'm working this out in real time here. But that map, do you remember we published that map? And I talked about this on the show a few weeks ago. That map of U.S. security arrangements around China and how Xi Jinping was talking about how he felt encircled and contained by ACUS, by the Quad, by the U.S. security relationships with the Philippines and whatnot. And in many ways, these diplomatic pushes that the Chinese are now aggressively pursuing feel like a very good way to counteract the stronger military presence that the United States has. Again, I'm working this out in real time. It's something that's going to come in down into a paper or an article that that I'm going to put forward. But Just thinking about it, as Bill was talking about the diplomacy behind the scenes for all of this, again, I think the Chinese are playing a weak hand very, very well.
0: Yes, I tend to agree. I think, obviously, China can't offer what the U.S., you know, offers. That that kind of unique security kind of deal that the U.S. has with a lot of regions, that's not what China can offer. But at the same time... And they wouldn't want to offer it even if they
1: could, by the way, because it's not their way of doing things. That's just not their thing.
0: Exactly. But it's also being the kind of power that can offer that comes with a lot of attachments, right? A lot of a lot of attached issues. And you know, so so in that sense I think China also travels lighter than the US. You know, kind of they come with less associations, they come with less baggage, they you know less history also in, in in which which isn't necessarily a bad thing i think in, in in the case of like middle east diplomacy you know i i think w- what will be the big test will be what kind of like once any kind of real life pressure is put on these diplomatic relationships like whether they'll carry it or not you know like like they, one can have lots of meetings and lots of red carpets and you know kind of a lot of time spent in meeting rooms with diplomats that doesn't necessarily mean that on the on the ground those relationships become really closer you know know like diplomacy still is lives separately from the rest of life you know so so that is it it is interesting but it it, i still want to see what kind of stress tests those relationships can take
1: and that's especially true in the middle east very quickly before we go because i know we want to wrap the show up uh, some very big news this week coming out of washington dc where the chinese are meeting with other multilateral creditors the united states india as the chairperson of the g20 And there were reports coming out of the Wall Street Journal and Reuters this week that the Chinese are backing off of a key demand for debt relief that impacts directly on countries like Zambia, that the Chinese are no longer going to ask or demand that the institutions like the World Bank also take write downs on their loans. This had been a major sticking point between China and institutions like the World Bank. The IMF came to the defense of the World Bank and said, we're not going to do that. The development finance institutions or the multilateral development banks, that's not what they do. They are the lenders of last resort. They need to be protected and they have this preferred creditor status that they need to preserve. That is their credit rating in order for them to borrow and to loan money and provide emergency financing where nobody else will that was all at risk in this dispute now it looks like there are hints that at the global sovereign debt roundtable i think that's the name of it where kristalina georgieva who's the managing director of the imf is bringing everybody together and there looks like there's some progress some green shoots of progress kobas that there may be some news on the debt relief front
0: Yes, I mean, there were these reports coming from Reuters and other outlets saying that there are rumours that the Chinese might be willing to step away from that demand that the multilateral development banks have to take losses as part of debt renegotiations, which as the, the Overseas Development Institute researcher Yunan Chen, who's you know is a friend of mine, tweeted, big if true, you know, which... Yeah, you know big if true. It's you know if that is ha- actually how it works out then that would be a significant step forward I think for countries like Zambia that are currently kind of like stuck in the middle as you know as these big fights are being fought. What I was wondering though is a is how that's going to play out on the China side, but also you know kind of what does this say about development finance more generally? Because you know one of one of the kind of the underlying logics that 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 seemed, to my mind seem to have been kind of part of this discussion is from the Western side like the characterization of this Chinese demand for these banks to take losses as outrageous and and you know kind of and, and threatening how things are done with the underlying kind of assumption that how things are done work, which anyone in the Global South will tell you that how things are done don't work. Like, the system itself is broken. The system is, is completely dysfunctional. There should be, you know, kind of ways to the ways to deal with, with bad debt, particularly in the context of development and particularly in the context of climate challenge development, you know, kind of facing these countries. There have to be a way of writing off debt. Like, there, you, it, it can't be a situation where you know, the, where everyone is kind of stuck in this philosophical kind of bind between China and the US. I mean, that is outrageous. But at the same time, you can't pretend that the that the current development finance landscape is just working fine and dandy, and China was just this massive spoiler, you know, like the the, the system itself is broken. And, you know, kind of and, and whether this is going to just patch a bandaid on it, and pe- people will move on for another 10 years, or whether there will actually be any actual real discussions about how to move forward with actual reforms. I mean, that is the big question for me.
1: That was one of the points that I made in today's newsletter for our subscribers was that this is a a critical test because if this fails, then really it challenges the credibility and the integrity of the development finance system. Because again, in the post-pandemic era, we've not had really any successful debt restructuring. Sri Lanka is still in progress. It's too early to call that a success. And so they've had some progress but it has not been a success. Chad, again, was so small, not entirely sure we can chalk that one up to a success. So Zambia is very much the, the test case here. Two key things to keep an eye on that, uh, that I noted today for our subscribers. Number one is the fact that if the Chinese are going to give up this demand for the World Bank, I really, really doubt that they're going to walk out of the room empty-handed. They're going to want a concession in exchange. What is that concession? And making concessions to the Chinese in a city like Washington is not an easy thing to do here. That is very, very important. The other thing to keep an eye on is the fact that the Chinese financial system was really not set up to do debt cancellations and debt restructurings, whereas the United States, the Europeans, even the Japanese to some extent, have had decades of experience doing this kind of thing. They have a system that is in many ways primed for it. They've got people who've worked in it before. This is all new to the Chinese. So whatever they agree on in Washington may take quite a bit of time to work through the Chinese domestic political system in order to get consensus to move these reforms through. That may not take a lot of time, but it's going to take some time. So the urgency of the moment right now for Zambia may be at odds with the political necessities of what the Chinese have to do to reform their system to accommodate whatever concessions they make in Washington. So just something to keep an eye on for there. Well, let's leave the conversation there. We're going to pick up the debt issue in, uh, I think next week, we've got Kevin Gallagher from Boston University's Global Development Policy Center. He's done some fascinating writing and thinking on this issue lately. He's going to come on and join us to talk all about what's going on at the spring meetings and this question of Zambia's debt and debt swaps and all the different things that are going on that. So keep an eye out for that in future episodes. And then Cobus and I will be back again next week with another episode of the China Global South podcast. I'm Eric Olander in Ho Chi Minh City for Cobus Staden in Johannesburg. Thank you so much for listening.
0: The discussion continues online. Follow the China Global South project on Twitter at China GS Project and share your thoughts on today's show or head over to our website at chinaglobalsouth.com where you can subscribe to receive full access to more than 5,000 articles and podcasts. Once again, that's ChinaglobalSouth.com.